Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Happy Merlot Month. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Nick Goldschmidt of Goldschmidt Vineyards in Healdsburg, California. Merlot has had, well, let's say it, a turbulent history. But it is a very worthy variety to have in your cellar. In honor of Merlot Month, we get a bit geeky about soil, climate, clones, and microbiology. The hour flew by, and I know this is going to be one of the most popular episodes. So grab a glass of Merlot, raise it to Merlot Month, and give a listen. If you enjoy exploring the wine glass, I'd appreciate you giving me some love by taking two minutes out of your day and swipe to rate and review on whatever app you're listening on. It is the best way to support the show. Also, if you would like to keep up on everything Exploring the Wine Glass, head over to exploringthewineglass.com and sign up for our newsletter. Slancha! Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, Spanish wine scholar, someday service, champagne and Cote de Ron specialist, and a WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. Stay in the know about all things wine by visiting my website, exploringthewineglass.com. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracina Wines. Today, we are getting down and dirty about Merlot, and it is Merlot Me Month, and November 8th? Don't quote me on that, but one day early November is also Merlot Day. So we are here with Nick Goldschmidt of Goldschmidt Vineyards, and we are going to talk all about Merlot. So hi, Nick. How are you, Laurie? I am good. I'm happy. I've got Merlot in my glass, so I am oh. happy. So, you know, it's it's tough to be sad when when you've got Merlot in the glass. That's exactly that's just, that's that, that's a good motto, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but before we actually get into the interview, I have to say kudos. You know, I stand up and give some high praise. I went to the website to go check out some information on you. And wow, the 2022 Press Democrat North Coast Wine Challenge. There's just a few gold medals there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm, I've been living in Healdsburg for um, 32 years now. Well, 33 villages in the Alexander Valley, which is where we focus on Merlot. I've always been a, I was a corporate winemaker for 25 years. I was a winemaker at CME for 15 years. And uh, during that time, ran by Louis Vuitton and then Constellation. And then I left and went to run the world's largest wine company at the time called Allo de Mex. So we had 150 wineries in seven countries and then uh, Jim Beam. So I, I, I've lived on an airplane for 25 years. Uh, but today I'm on my own. Um, I would love to make and produce more Merlot, but unfortunately we've got a massive following for Cabernet. I still make Cabernet in seven countries. In fact, uh, on Friday I head off back down to Chile to get ready for the 2023 vintage. 
But Merlo, I've always been a right bank fan ever since I, um, as a consultant, I got to learn to be a consultant through a very famous person called Michel Rolland, who, for those who don't know, he's probably the number one consultant in the world. And I got to work with him for 12 years at CIMI. And he's from Pomerol. Now, Pomerol is right bank Bordeaux. And today, maybe he just wet my whistle with Pomerol, but I'm just a huge right back Pomerol fan. And let's face it, Obreon and and uh, Petrus are actually not bad wines. And they're made <laughs> yeah, from Merlot, you know. <laughs> so, and I, and I really, man, I really think Merlot is a, a, an American palate wine. I mean, Cabernet is more spicy, a little bit um, greener. And, and, and the reason why a lot of Cabernet is made at high alcohol is because Consumers don't really like that character. So if you make wine at higher alcohol, you can actually get rid of the green. So if you don't like spicy wines, drink Malo, man. I love it. That is so true. That is so true. And I am a right back, right bank fan also. Um, I am a Merlot lover, but I am a Cab Franc fanatic. Um, so uh, right bank is where I, you know, I love Pomerol, but, uh, you know, Saint-Demion, like, it's you gotta you gotta love it right it's it's a beautiful place um and i love your passion for merlot so this is this you know we got set up for the right interview here the right interview here for this um so i I looked on the website and you do have wines as you mentioned you're heading down to chile so if you if you would like somebody to come help you in chile (laughs) i'll i'll fly with you i have no problem with that Yeah, yeah um so you Many do... people say they want to come, but it, I change wineries every two days, and it's a six-week haul, man. Wow. And then I send the I send the agenda, and everyone goes delete, unfriend. Oh, I would not <laughs> no, do tough. that. I promise, I would not do that. It sounds it sounds like a rough go, but in my yeah. eyes, you get this that six weeks of seeing and experiencing so much, you know, and that to me would be quite the education versus. You know, like I wouldn't mind staying in one place for six weeks either, you would learn. But to bounce around, you can see how different people do different things. And that, to me, is quite the experience. Yeah, well, Chile and Argentina, where I work, um, have quite different experiences with Merlot. I mean, Merlot and Chile were started off with Carmen Air, and then we gradually, obviously, we understood. But last week, I was in Canada, so I run a couple of wineries in Canada as well. And one of the wineries focuses on Merlot. It's called Checkmate. And... The Merlot style that we get there is is fuller and more powerful, whereas what we look for in the Alexander Valley is more silky and round. And But the key element that exists, and I also make New Zealand, I make Merlot in New Zealand and Australia, but the key element of those of Chile, Argentina, New Zealand, Australia, California is clay. Now, in, in Canada, we do not have clay, and clay is really important for Merlot more than Cabernet because clay holds water. And, you know, when you add water to clay, it expands. Well, the roots, so when we plant Merlot, firstly, we go for a really specific uh, rootstock, usually um, 33.09 or 11.03 pulse and all, or 110R, and we'll, we'll cut into the clay soil so that the roots can penetrate into the clay because then the clay closes in uh, when it swells, and so those roots can maintain that water. Now, why is water, why is clay important for Merlot? Is 
Merlot berries weigh about 1.2 grams, whereas Cabernet weighs about 0.9 grams. And when you end up with a, an arid environment like we do now in Napa Sonoma, we get much more heat. And so when you, when you dehydrate a Merlot berry, say 10%, that's a huge concentration of sugar, acid, and tannin. When you dehydrate Cabernet, it's a much smaller 10% is much less significant. So it's really important for us to find soils that have a little bit of clay in them so that that Merlot can get remain in good turgor all the way through the season. So when we bring that wine into the winery, when we bring that fruit into the winery, we can extract the heck out of it, you know? So we can, this Chelsea Merlot, which we're talking about first, is a Cabernet drinker's Merlot because, you know, we, we, we want to have that richness and that power. But at the same time, Merlot is going to give us that soft, round, supple finish. And so, so that's what I look for, a little bit let, of clay. Let's go back to the clay because that, that's really cool because most vines don't like wet feet. Right. Most most vines don't like wet feet. So when you have the clay and it hugs the hugs, the roots like you're doing it, is it more like an insulation? Because clay also can hold on to the water. So is it kind of like, you know, not wet under there, more like a dripping sponge constantly? Well, yeah, it's not. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, vines don't like wet feet. I mean, potatoes like wet feet. All right. So. We are not talking about potato country here. We're not talking about water tables that are, you know, a couple of feet down. We're talking about water tables that are two meters down. So, you know, six feet. So those roots have got to go six feet down to hit that clay or in one in my best vineyard, about a meter and a half. So uh, three, four and a half feet. Okay. So uh, it's quite a distance for those roots to, to go down. Plus the changing of the rootstock is really important. Um, so yeah, we, it, when clay gets wet, it expands and when clay dries out, you know, it cracks. And so one of the problems that we had growing Merlot and Carneros, I don't grow Merlot and Carneros anymore, is that when that clay cracks, it breaks all the roots because those roots are, are tucked in there really tight. So in the summer, you get that black, you know, that marine clay that you get in, in Carneros, when that soil cracks, it breaks the roots as well, and that encourages spring growth, um, which oh. is really which is really important to the makeup of Merlot and Carneros. I find that a little bit too clay-y for me, so I prefer to have down near the river where we get more alluvial soils rather than co-alluvial co or alluvial. I prefer to be on a little bit of alluvial soil. And wherever you see a stone, you know there's clay. Uh, okay. That's just the makeup of, of what soils are about, yeah. And but I don't, I don't believe in terroir. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> it's all rubbish. <laughs> it is because if you irrigate, you change your terroir. If you add fertilizer, you change your terroir. If you plant with a different rootstock and a different road direction, you got a different winemaker making it. You got a different winery producing it. You change the terroir. So right. only dry, dry farming and organic farming is true terroir. Sure. Awesome. You know that. I've never actually thought about it that way, but you are correct. You know, the more, the more a human influences something, the less the nature is. And that is what terror is, right? It's what nature is doing. Um, so let's go to the different countries that you, that you create. Now, are these all late, your own labels or are you consulting for these other labels in different countries? Primarily uh, in, in the Alexander Valley and Napa, it's only 100% uh, Goldschmidt vineyards. Okay. 
when I'm outside of the US, I don't do any, I know this is really weird, but I've been consulting for, you know, pretty much 30 years, but I don't consult for anyone in the US because I like to be really focused on what I do. And so that means spending two days with one winemaker, you know, I eat with them, I drink with them, I because culture is such an important part. So when I when I'm outside the US, I'm 100% consulting. We do own vineyards. Goldschmidt actually owns two vineyards in New Zealand, one in Chile and one in Argentina um, as well, but they're very, very small. I spent, so I consult for 26 other wineries around the world, um, but all new world. Yeah. Wow. Just, just a few wineries that you consult with. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm old. I'm, I'm more of a sage. I'm a sage. Sage. <laughs> You know what? I've known you for I don't know fifteen minutes. I love you. I I love you. I love you. Yeah, that's because we're them. we're like twenty miles. You know, we're like four hours apart. Right <laughs> <laughs> I hear that a lot. Look, lucky you're five hours away, man. We're eating and drinking. Like, oh. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, in those different in the different countries, and you're growing Merlot. You're still looking for the clay soils, but are you? Are, what other things do you look for that might be in Chile versus Alexander Valley? Is there something special for Merlot in each of those areas? That's a really tough question because I could, uh, it's a super long answer because every appellation, I mean, the difference in Merlot between Colchawa, Kachapol, um, Puemo, Maipo, you know, or Uka Valley, Vestalba, Luhan, Valunta, and the Central Valley. I mean, no, there's so many different appellations, so many different versions. But what I will say is that Merlot is more intrinsic to the terroir, or whatever that may be, than Cabernet. Because if I give you Cabernet at 15.5 alcohol, if I give you Cabernet from Alexander Valley, most of what I do in Napa is in Oakville. So Alexander Valley, Oakville, Maipo, Colchawa, Ketchapulse, uh, Rappel, uh, McLaren Vale in Australia, Barossa, um, or up in the Okanagan, whatever. And I lined all those cabinets up, and they're all at 15 and a half alcohol. And I, and I gave you which five wines were here. You couldn't tell them apart. Because at 15 and a half alcohol, you removed terroir. But with Merlot, we can pick Merlot uh, with a shorter hang time, okay? So we talk about 100 days from flowering to harvest. That's what it is in Bordeaux. In Alexander Valley, it's about 140 days for Cabernet and Napa Valley, about 130 days. But for Merlot, we can pick it at about 120 days. So because we know that the flavor, the tannin, and the sugar are all in about the right balance at that time frame. So we can make Merlot at 14 alcohol, and be a true representative of where it's from. And that's what I look for when I'm making Merlot around the world in these different appellations is being really true to type. Okay, so I'm going to ask you another geeky question here then. So when you're looking at this, right, so you're saying around 14 alcohol or whatever. So let, let's let's go with Chelsea. Let's introduce Chelsea because quite honestly, right. I want to take a sip of this wine. So it's always <laughs> rude to sit before I introduce. So we're going to look at this Chelsea Goldsmith. And I am assuming that is a picture of your daughter, young daughter in a ponytail. Well, it's it, the story. So I have five children okay. and uh, three of them are daughters. 
And for a father, between the ages of 13 and 20, girls don't really talk to their fathers much because we're so stupid. <laughs> so having a family project has been really interesting. That was the premise. So how did I get my daughters to work with me? So in the year 2000, I told my kids, when I lived in Chile back in the 80s, Pinochet, who was the dictator in Chile at the time, would cut off oil, power, water, food, whatever he wanted. So I was explaining to my kids about how to make wine without electricity. So we make one barrel a year, we hand pick it, we handy stem it, we pijage, punch down, basket press, put it, I'm not stupid, but you do put it in a warehouse for a year, and then we bring it out and bottle it. Um, so we do use a little bit of electricity to keep the barrel cool. But we bottle it, we hand bottle it, and we call it five gold hands, Goldschmidt, five gold hands unplugged each year. So in 2001, Chelsea said, oh, you know, can can I make wine with you? Now, all of my kids are scientists, which is really weird. So Chelsea's a genomist, so she's got a oh, master's wow. in biology, and she's tracking viruses or whatever they do. That is DNA. so cool. So when she was two, she lay on the ground, and I traced around her head, and she colored it in. That's where the label comes from. Now, I have updated a little bit because she has hair now. Um, <laughs> And it's a really cool project to to do this because the uh, vineyard used to be a vineyard that was sold to when I was running Clos de Bois as part of Allo de Mec. It's there's a wine, a very famous wine called Milestone, and Mal, this is the same fruit as Milestone, same vineyard, same winemaker per se, and uh, yeah, and then to make it with her, special, you know, firstborn. I'm a firstborn too, right? So. <laughs> Firstborns are very interesting children. I'm daddy's little girl. I'm the only girl and I'm the baby. So You're the youngest? I am the youngest and I'm the only girl. I have one. Of, well, yeah, I know what my youngest daughter is like. She's an engine. She's a, she's a civil engineer and man, oh man. <laughs> well, Let's go back to you. Let's go yeah, back to you. Yeah, so well, I'm a, I'm a trained microbiologist, so I'm biology. Oh, cool. Yeah, Good for you. yes. So um, no wonder it, you like wine. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, Which bacteria can you smell? Yeah, but a pediococcus. There was pediococcus like the bacillus. There was there was a time because I don't do it anymore. Um, I actually left microbiology because I was too hyper, and I went into teaching. And, um, so, you know, changes every 45 minutes or whatever, much, much more tuned to me, you know, my hyperness. And, but there was a time when I was really doing it that I could do that. I could just smell it and tell you exactly what yeah. that microorganism was, but I guess it's like a foreign language when you don't use it so much, you lose it, you know, but yeah, I, I, yeah, that's, we could talk all day. Cause I love micro. Um, cause back, remember in the eighties when I, was training to be a winemaker i mean we were taught to make sherries and ports so you become very sensitive to spoilage bacteria and yeast so even today i can still identify lactobacillus if i smell lactobacillus i'm panic yes <laughs> you know? uh, luckily i don't smell it very often but um but i'm very sensitive to yeast aromas and aromatics and i find a lot of them really interesting you know a lot of people talk so this is native uh firming. okay Native ferment and native bacteria um, for for ML as well. So this wine is 100% Merlot, 100% from one vineyard, 100% vintage, and 100% hands off, and it's vegan. So 
Uh, we don't make any additions to these wines at all. And I wish that we could change the law and put all of that on the label. But it's, I know that it scares a lot of other wineries because suddenly they would have to adhere to these sort of rules. Mm. But, yeah, it's – well, anyway, I could talk all day, but just a, a really awesome project to do with Chelsea. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot wow. about her. Well, I'm sure, you know, when you're working together, stories get told, things, you know, it's a conversation. You know, you think about how much it's a conversation starter to just be drinking wine together, never mind making wine together with the conversations that occur over it. And, you know, it's a nice bonding experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now when you're when you're looking for this, you're saying that you're looking for clay for the clay uh, soils. Um, this is your estate? No, this is a long-term contract long-term. Um, uh, from a from a really old family. I'm working with the next generation now because okay. the original owners have passed away. Um, but yeah, I just have a long, long history. So what I am looking for, though, is um, I'm looking to really, re- like quite different to the Merlot that we make over in Oakville. So if you think about, and I learned a lot about this during COVID because I was nine in my bubble. We drank 1,500 bottles of wine in 18 months. <laughs> so if you think about Alexander Valley, you go red cherry, blueberry, black cherry in terms of flavor characteristics. Now, in that Napa Valley, you start at blueberry, black cherry, plum. Okay. So slightly blacker fruit, slightly more red fruit for the Alexander Valley. Then because Napa Valley traditionally has more alcohol, you get more texture, and Alexander Valley has a little bit more, it's cooler in the Alexander Valley, so you get a little bit more brightness. So I really want to represent those two characteristics when I'm thinking about it. So what I noticed, and this is inherently true, I don't care what other people think because I'm so old now, um, that when I'm eating food, I drink Alexander Valley because Alexander Valley is more red fruits, more in your face, a little bit brighter, a little bit more acidity. Whereas Napa Valley, I drink with cheese. I drink it at okay. the end of the core, at the end of the meal, because my palate is more tired. And I, you know, everything I learned was is a story. So I'm 27. I'm blending at Roses in Portugal for LA, for LVMH when I was running all the still wines for LVMH. The reason why people are skinny in Portugal is because the food is really hard to eat, right? They eat these barnacles and it's 120 degrees and you're drinking port. So day three, I said, you know, dude, it's 120 degrees out here. We're outside drinking. Have you got any white wine? They're like, Nick, we don't make white wine in Portugal. And the young lady in the restaurant goes, oh, don't worry about it. She brings a glass of white wine, you know, filled up to the top like my mother does. The condensation's (laughs) pouring off. And I go, all the enamel has gone off my teeth. The roof of my mouth has gone. But what I learned at that moment is like that, that drinkability, you know, am I hungry or thirsty? And I get that in Alexander Valley. Like, it's very easy to drink two glasses of wine from the Alexander Valley back to back, where it's very hard to do that in Napa because you got you got more fructose, you got more carbohydrates, you got more alcohol. It makes your palate tired. So when now, now if you convert, if you differentiate Merlot, you could throw Cabernet Franc in there too, and versus Cabernet, we can actually make these wines even fresher so young Merlot, man, from the Alexander Valley, it's incredible. Really, really fun. This lively is a fantastic description for it. It, um, like you typically get people saying 
you know, oh, a white wine makes you salivate or whatever, you know, this is really making me salivate. This is making me want another, another sip. It is, it is bright. It, it, you know, the, the, the red fruit, there's a little like red plum, red cherry, but I'm also getting, and I don't know if this is, you know, I get a little bit of like, like a little bit of anise or a little, you know, licorice, but not strong. Well, licorice is absolutely correct. And I strive to get a little bit, I know it's hard to do it without like explaining it, like with a glass between the two of us sitting at a bar and I'm explaining it to you. It's quite different. But this is a way, when I worked at Penfolds, when I worked at Grange, probably the most famous uh, winery in Australia, definitely, and most famous Shiraz producer in the world, there's a very complexing agent they use and, and, and they allow a certain bacteria to grow during the aging process and then they hit it on its head. Because if you allow that bacteria, and this every wine in the world has this bacteria, but it's a matter of how you control it. And if you allow it to age in the barrel for three years, I see it as, you know, ethyl acetate or acetic acid. But if you can control it in the first three months, and then at the end of that time, it comes across as licorice. And that's exactly what you're tasting. So don't be put off by the, the aromatic of what licorice is, but in the mouth, you get this... You know, you get this fullness and this richness. And so you get this beautiful elegance and ripe cherry, red cherry aromatic, but you get this like long and then you, this 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 wine just blows in the mouth. Like it has this big textural element. And that's really, you know, it's a meal in a glass, right? It, it It's beautiful and it's elegant. It, it's, it, it's elegant. And one of the things about Merlot, well, let me let me go back to other things that you're looking for at, at, during harvest time. We talked about you like the soil, the the clay in the soil. Are you and you are looking for a production of 14% alcohol? Um, so you're looking at a bricks. What is your bricks that you're kind of targeting in on? That is kind of a you know the flag that says okay, I need to start paying more attention. Um, well, bricks is really interesting because yeast are becoming more efficient. So right. what you do is you, you multiply, we used to multiply 24 bricks by 0.58. Today we multiply by 0.6 or 0.61. So our yeast are becoming more efficient, producing more alcohol. At the same time, our understanding of how to grow grapes is all about exposure, openness, uh, and using VSP. We talk about vertical shoot positioning. Not horizontal. Too much Merlot is grown horizontally. You've got to straighten it up. Once you straighten it up, we get good light interception. And so, except for the 2020, which we're drinking today, because 2020 was a very difficult vintage. Uh, 20... <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. I know. So 21 and 22, I'm picking closer to 23 bricks. So hopefully okay. the alcohols are going to be around about 13.5. I mean, all the 100-point wines that we're making outside of the U.S. now are all under 14 alcohol, even Cabernet. I think the U.S. Napa Sonoma to be the other uh, problem children. We need to get our alcohols down, and we need to be farming correctly to do that. Absolutely. And now with so Merlot is a child of my beloved Cabernet Franc, so that means it's a relative of Cabernet Sauvignon. So the but you don't get those same pyrazines that are known 
in that Cabernet Sauvignon uh, as frequently in a Merlot. So what about Merlot makes it different makes it different? Is it the the mom that I can't pronounce her her name, you know, Majeline de Chaudus, whatever? Yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> no, the the main problem with Merlot is the set. So it's during flowering, Merlot takes the longest of the other four of the five Bordeaux varietals or six Bordeaux varietals, if you want to include Carmenere. It's the longest flowering. And so you always have inclement weather at some point during flowering. And so when you look at a Merlot cluster, it tends to be a lot more open because a lot of berries don't form, whereas Cabernet Franc is especially uh, efficient. It's a very short. So when you look at a Cabernet Franc cluster, it's very, very tight. And that's that's also a problem because we get a lot of berries that don't ripen in Cabernet Franc. And so the prop, number one, to make great Cabernet Franc, you're going to drop half it on the ground. Uh, to make great Merlot, you really have to have that open cluster because you can imagine those berries as individual all over the cluster get great light and heat, um, air exposure. And so you get much more even ripening with Merlot than you do with Cabernet Franc. And Cabernet Sauvignon is somewhere in between. Okay. All right. That was like fantastic education. Um... <laughs> it's what you paid for. <laughs> it's, all a con- it's all a conspiracy, you know. There you go. <laughs> So, all right. So we've talked, you've talked about, you know, Alexander Valley, you know, and the red versus the blue. That's, that's phenomenal. And I'm not going to lie. You're the first person who has, has explained them in that direct, in that way. So I absolutely love it. Um, So let's talk about the, the Chelsea again, so I can drink more. Okay. (laughs) And 2020, you said it was a difficult vintage. Um, and I'd laughed at an understatement, but w- other than the obvious, what was, what was difficult about the, about 2020? What made this? Well, uh, yeah, we don't need to dwell on what happened in 2020. I mean, we, this is a common th- phenomenon throughout the world. I mean, we've had, um, two countries that I've already named. We probably much have fires every year. So, I mean, we know how to deal with fire, but we've got a lot of issues here with the way analysis is run and what people do with that analysis and how they treat the wine. And I was, I really don't want to delve into the differences between Guayacol Formi, the Guayacol Serena, cells, and all that. And that's the problem. Unless you understand that, you can't argue. And now a word from our sponsor. Looking to be in the know about Dracaena wines? Want to be the first to know about our new releases and special offers? All you need to do is sign up for our newsletter. There is no commitment necessary, and I promise you we won't spam your mailbox with loads of messages. Need another reason to sign up? Quite possibly the best reason? You'll immediately get a discount code for 10% off your first purchase and be privy to newsletter-only discounts. Let Dracaena Wines turn your moments into great memories. Visit our website, www.dracaenawines.com, or use the link in show notes to sign up. It will take you less than a minute, but the rewards will last a lifetime. So, but what really made it difficult was the speed of the vintage. So it was extremely warm and dry. Um, It was the third year of the... 1920 it was the second year of the drought and we'd come up against you know 19 was a really bright vintage slightly cooler 2018 was the in-your-face vintage 
2018 reminds me of 2013 and 1997. 2020 would remind me more like a, a 1998 or a 2002 vintage. Um, but then we and, and then right up against it, obviously we've got 21 and 22, which you know 2021. Now, admittedly, 20 2012 was probably the best vintage in 35 years. So there's not too much 2012 around, but uh, 2021 is not that far behind. I think 21 is a phenomenal vintage. And then 22 is actually very similar. Not Maybe not quite as good as 21 because 22 is going to have a little bit more acidity in it than 21. Okay. But, uh, you know, you, look, the last really bad vintage we had was 1989. Okay. So... But if you line up all the bad vintages that we had in the 80s, we probably had five very weak vintages in the 80s, and since then we've had four other weak ones. But if you did that in Bordeaux, we'd probably have 10 strong vintages and 20 weak ones. So we make wine in the in – the, I live in California. I could live anywhere, but I make wine in California because it's the best place to make great wine. And and um, it's really hard to say 2020 was not a strongest vintage, but it was a difficult vintage, okay. challenging vintage, but – in the end, well, the result it's was beautiful phenomenal. wine. So yeah. it, it it may have been difficult, but it's a it's a beautiful wine. Now, if you were picking, and I don't know if you can answer this or you know whatever, but if you were picking the ideal vintage, you are you are you know Mister Heat Miser and Mister Snow Miser together, and the Mother Nature coming together. If you can pick the perfect vintage, not not vintage climate going on you know the the season the growing season for merlot what would merlot want to give you this is the perfect storm of fantastic vintage well the most important thing is not to have humidity in april okay <laughs> because because that's when we're flowering and merlot is all about flowering now we really like to have um, nice spring moisture so that the vines get off to a balanced start. We don't want to have the soil be too cold. So if we have some water in the soil profile, it actually prevents the soil from getting really cold. So, you know, we talk about dry farming in some vineyards, but we can't dry farm if we don't get winter rainfall. And then subsequently, we, we don't want to have scorching heat you know, like we had in 2022 or 2020 or 2018, where we had, you know, a week of really hot weather. Merlot, again, really suffered. So Merlot is is a cooler varietal than Cabernet. This is why we grow Merlot in the Okanagan Valley in Canada. And we can get it ripe. We can't get Cabernet to its ideal condition, I feel, in Canada. But Merlot, we can. So Merlot is destined for more of a cool climate situation or a, it can handle um, a little bit more moisture um, as long as it doesn't happen in flowering. So, yeah, really, it's all about April and early May. And you were saying it's a long, it's a longer flowering. Than... Yes. So normally, um, you know, if, if uh, flowering, if I was to draw this, um, flowering, as I said, takes you know, between flowering and harvest, we can hit um, 130 days. So um, let me, I can quickly draw this. I'm very fast. Um, That's okay. It gives me an opportunity to drink more Chelsea. So this is this is what it looks like. So 
Uh, oh, oh, no All right, maybe I can't do it because <laughs> um, I'd have to change my background. Um, the uh, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just that it takes so long to ripen, uh, to flower, this um, this other varietals. But yeah, but they all and, ripen at different times. Times. And for those who, you know, if you're not following it previously, so flowering is really kind of the the dangerous part um, for uh, any vineyard, for any variety, right? When it's flowering, that's when it is at the most susceptible to being uh, yeah, that's, damaged, yeah. basically. Well, because after flowering comes set. And so right. people always... At set, everybody runs out and sees what they've got. But in 2019, we had a lot of wind. And wind during flowering is not good either. Right. Not just heat, not just rain, but wind blows off a lot of those flowers. And if they don't, because yeah, um, they're asexual, right? So if they don't self-pollinate, you've got a problem. I mean, otherwise, the wind blows it all away. And when the wind blows, the vines, you know, I don't know if you know about how you know when you've got the stomata of the leaf that that area of transfer of photosynthesis is variable for each variety so merlot the transfer is much bigger than it is for cabernet so that transpiration area for merlot if it's windy we're actually drying out the vine much quicker than we would be for Cabernet. So the Merlot is more susceptible to going to stress. I mean, I spend a lot of time, if you go on my YouTube channel, I've got about 2,500 videos up, but you can see me rubbing the leaves. You know, like, <laughs> it's a big difference between rubbing a leaf that goes, you know, versus, you know, you know, because you can feel, you know, my second degrees in organics and biodynamics, you can feel uh the the moisture in the leaf you can actually feel that just by rubbing the leaves and I, that's i determine a lot of how i irrigate or how i farm based on the sound that i get from rubbing leaves <laughs> i love it i love yeah. it you know and people you know people talk about um they when it comes to harvest it's in you know some people talk about it. It's in the lab. The chemistry has to be this or that. And that's what they go by. And I think the better wines are all done by the winemaker who's walking the vineyard, tasting the grapes, you know, doing that. That takes it to the extreme. If you can tell the difference, uh, you know, when to irrigate because you know the sound of the leaves, like you are being one with that vine. And there's it's difficult to have a bad product if you are knowing exactly what the vines are trying to say yeah i i um i feel strongly though that winemakers need to have a chemistry background mm -hmm. if you do but not have do a you want it to be but i don't think it should be the final decision no so i think there's there's a there's a line there when you become a sage you move from chemical winemaking to artistic winemaking and people say, you know, they always ask, is this a science or is it an art? I'm like, well, it's a transition for me. So I, a lot of winemakers are going to disagree with this, but I feel that to be a true winemaker, you really, really need to have the educational background, the scientific background, understand 
you know, the makeup of the yeast and the bacteria and the plant pathology and stress irrigation and all all the things that go into growing a vineyard and to producing the wine. Once you've had enough of that experience, then you can transition that into walking the vineyard and saying, hey, I can affect this by that and I can change this character by that. I mean, you really got to have the base before you become an artist. And let's face it, you know, when we all run to the bunker, if, you know, God forbid we get one of those bombs dropped on us from a peninsula nearby and we run to the bunker for 15 years, what are you going to take? I'm going to take a wine from a guy that's been making wine for 40, 50 years, not from somebody who's only made wine since 2017 and charging a $500 a bottle because it's made in Napa. <laughs> so drink old guys' wines. There you go. Because you know they're going to laugh. Like, you know, you'll never see crusty stuff on my bottles mm -hmm. because, you know, this is an anthocyanin and this is a malvidin 3 glucoside, right? This is your anthocyanin and it's purple. Heat, light, air, and time, tannin, red. More heat, light, air, and time, polymerization drops out, wine turns brown. Okay. When I go to the bunker, I want to drink wines that are going to be purple and red. And I can show you Chelsea that I made in 1990, and it's still red. Right. That's well, the key. I, as I volunteer to travel to Chile with you, I volunteer to taste the 1990 Chelsea also. <laughs> there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> so we're, when it comes to Merlot and Merlot Me Month, Okay. It is, I, I'm sure it's kind of like, stop saying this, stop saying this, but you know what? You can't talk about Merlot without the horrible, horrible sideways effect. So what is your, what is your take on the sideways effect of Merlot? That most people watching the movie didn't understand the sarcasm. Thank you. I mean, because he drank Merlot all the way through. Thank you. But people thought he was drinking Pinot. Look, whatever. I mean, I drink a lot of Pinot. I make, but it's too warm here, man. I mean, when I make Pinot, I make it in the Southern Hemisphere, like at the equivalent level of Seattle. Okay. I mean, you know, Russian River is successful because we have a fog line and it's interesting. And I mean, Paso Robles Pinot, my God, it's so damn hot down there. But I say the same thing about Sauvignon Blanc. So, you know, I go where I go where it's easy, you know. So making Pinot around here is difficult because the alcohols are so high and, you know, but because it says Pinot, it says Russian River or whatever, you know, whereas Merlot is going to be less susceptible to, you know, it's more borderline. I mean, we live in an arid environment or becoming more arid. And Merlot is great because we can pick it early before a lot of the heat comes and we can maintain its, its freshness and its, and its viability varietalness and yeah it's far more interesting and more complex and more going on and as i said you know i i um i like right bank and i like i like the complexity of bordeaux um i think pinot i like pinot because it because of its simplicity and i think you can get more simplicity from cooler uh more moist environments um yeah i know i can get a very complex pinot yeah i i, I see that but when you talk about depth of and richness and, and that you can get more from Merlot, I, I believe. Do you, one of the things that I, when I'm talking to people about Merlot, the first thing I say is, A, you didn't understand the movie. B, watch what he's drinking at the end of the movie. And then there's your, you know, um, but C, 
I do think that Merlot has come a long way. And I think that, and honestly, I think every great variety has gone through this concept of it takes time to understand that great variety. And at some point, Merlot might have been a bit overplanted and a little bit misunderstood. But as winemakers take their passion for Merlot and learn what Merlot is can be if you're putting it in the proper environment, then it's it's quality wine. And I that that's my opinion is there was a lot of bad Merlot, but you know what? There was a lot of bad cat and there's a lot of bad soft and there's a you know cat sauvignon blanc and there's a lot of bad a lot out there. But the winemakers who listen to what the grape is trying to or being able to do are the ones who can change it. So do you see yourself as as like a maybe not forefather isn't the right word, but, you know, a charge for Merlot? Yes, obviously, I'd love to see it gain its true notoriety. I mean, it's still the number one red grape planted in the world. It just so happens that Cabernet is more widely planted in Napa Sonoma. And you're absolutely correct. I, I usually don't talk about it, but when Merlot became hugely popular in the in the early 90s, everybody was planting Merlot everywhere. That did not happen when Pinot Noir became hot because Pinot was, everyone knew Pinot was more climate susceptible, so they weren't going to grow Pinot in warm environments. So that was a saviour for Pinot and kept the price of Pinot up, whereas Merlot was planted in a lot of warm environments where it really doesn't fit. You know, they thought, oh, I can grow Cabernet, therefore I can grow Merlot because it's Bordeaux. No, Merlot needs cooler, a cooler environment. You're going to pick it earlier. And as I said, you need a little bit more clay, whereas Cabernet can be planted on more of a of the loamy free draining soils, which we have more of because, of course, we're alluvial, a lot of alluvial soils in, in California. So Cabernet is more easy to grow in more, more, more places, whereas Merlot is not. But you're right. I mean, Merlot was overplanted and therefore it was planted in places that shouldn't have been. And therefore the quality of, you know, probably 20 percent of the Merlot uh, right when Sideways came out was probably shouldn't have been Merlot. So, yeah, didn't taste right. as good. Right. Absolutely. Now, let's move on to Trig Point. So Trig Point 2019 Merlot Diamond Dust Vineyard. Yes. Yeah, so, so tell for those me about know, this wine. This is about my father. So like me, we're all engineers. My children are all engineers. They're all scientists. And my father's an engineer. My brother's an engineer. My sister's an engineer. And a trig is a point of reference that we used to build on top of hills back in the days before GPS. You guys remember that? <laughs> <laughs> so from when my father was a land surveyor, so he could stand on one point, take a site onto the mountain, and he could work out the distance and how far it was across the river and where to put the property line and build the house. He was in the fourth expedition to the South Pole in 1958. And so eight of them went down. A, f a few of them were killed going down a crevasse, but my father survived. There's places named after my father in the Antarctic. And wow. those days, of course, there was no wood. There was no wood to build trigs. And so they built them out of stone. They're called cans. And they're built in the same shape. And so my office here is called Base Camp, which means, you know, where they used to come back to Scott Base, which was the only base down there. The Americans had built McMurdo Sound by then. 
but he was based at Scott Base and surveyed the Ross Ice, the Ross Ice Shelf. So this is sort of a, a tribute. If you read the back label, it talks about my mathematician father. And even today, he's 89. And whenever you mention a number, he can go, you know, here's a rhyme for every number. He can remember numbers. He knows how far it is. He can still pace out, you know, 50 meters and miss by, you know, a couple of centimeters. He can, you know, it's, That's it's awesome. crazy. He may not, you know, uh, appreciate life or as fit as he used to be. I mean, he was super fit for so long. And, but this is all about mathematics and trig being the point of reference for uh, location. And in this case, a point of reference for a great Merlot vineyard that we make this. This vineyard is a little bit different to the Chelsea. This vineyard comes from much closer to Healdsburg here. It's a very steep vineyard and where we grow the Cabernet called Trig Point. And then the Merlot comes from closer to the river. Probably, uh, probably you know, it's got to be up there with Chelsea. It's a phenomenal Merlot vineyard. Again, I've been making wine here since 1995. So it's owned by uh, the Pasalakwa family. And I've been working with the Pasalakwas, again, second generation now. Um, just a great family to work with. And, um, yeah, this is a tribute to both my father and to an old family heritage such as the Pasalakwas. So now going back to your, your map that you were demonstrating before, where yeah. where does this fall in? All right. So if we if if Chelsea's a little bit more um red fruit or a little bit has a little bit more structure and zippy, this vineyard being a little deeper in soil is going to be a little bit more textural than um I could draw it on chart, but it's not going to show up. <laughs> Again, I, anyone who's interested, you send me a video uh, email, I'll send you the link and I'll it'll there's a video where I describe black fruit, red fruit, structure and texture. So, yeah, um, trig point's going to be a little richer uh, than what Chelsea is. Chelsea's going to be a little brighter and, and um, second glass material. The um, trig point's going to be just a bit more complex, a bit bigger. And uh, so quite different vineyards, quite different exposures, and therefore completely different wines. But again, one vineyard, one vintage, one variety, and all vegan. And so to, let's talk about harvest dates between these two. Wow. Generally That's, speaking. <laughs> um, trig point is about three weeks after Chelsea. Wow. Much, much, much cooler location. The vineyards are about under 15 minutes apart. Alexander Valley looks like an upside down Y. Okay. okay. Chelsea comes from, Geyserville would be in the middle. So Chelsea comes from the east side of Geyserville around here. And trig point comes from down here. So, uh, both vineyards are quite interesting because um, they both face north and north is a cooler site, but the Trig Point vineyard is much lower down, much closer to the, well, they're both close to the river, but the Trig Point is just a little bit cooler in its location. There's more trees around, more protection, more of a valley, whereas uh, the Chelsea is more on an open plain. Well, not really, but I mean, you get more, it's more open for sure. And in terms of, so the growing season, is everything like about three weeks later at Diamond or is it just like, are they flowering around the same time and then it takes longer to ripen at Diamond? How is their life cycle? Yeah, so Diamond Dust is, it's an actual real road. Diamond Dust was the name of a road, but it's a paper road. Again, it's a, it was a survey line 
that was made, but the road was never built. So we discovered this on an old map. No, the Cabernet on that same site, we pick before the Merlot, which is really unusual. The Cabernet is really a thinner soil. It's a very, very steep hillside. It's over 30%, which these days you can't plant that sort of steepness. This was um, planted a long, long time ago. And the Merlot is much lower down. And so the soil is a little deeper. The clay is a bit further down here. Um, so, yeah, it's it's dramatically later than the Cabernet. It's, I know my, my assistant, Waimaker, goes, I can't believe that Merlot is like, you know, it's one of our last Bordeaux vineyards to plant, and yet it's Merlot. But it's also planted on an old California sprawl. So, you know, it's more of a bush vine situation with big canopy cover. So we're keeping that, that cluster covered from the intense sun that we, we get these days, whereas the Cabernet is grown on a VSP, much more vertical and more exposure. So that's, you know, we get less crop in those situations. So the Cabernet will come in earlier than the Merlot, yeah. And are you, so facing north, is that something that if you're looking to plant Merlot, is that something that is a, you want to keep in mind, you want to find a site that can be northern facing? Yeah, I learned, I mean, I came to California to make Pinot. <laughs> I learned a lot about Merlot making Pinot. So the ideal, I mean, at this latitude, you need to plant Pinot facing east, you know, morning sun. So the east facing sites are going to be cooler than the afternoon facing west face. So if you want to be even cooler north, so ideally you want north, northeast facing because it's morning sun only and then the afternoon you get shade. Now you think north, south, right? But in the northern hemisphere, you want to plant uh, two o'clock, um, eight o'clock, whereas in the southern hemisphere, you want to plant oh. the other way because remember the sun. My ideal measurement is on August 15, which I always remember because of my wife's birthday, <laughs> August 15. At 3 p.m., I want no shadow because I think that is the hottest part of the season. So I want the sun directly overhead on August 15. And then you can use a trig to figure that out when you're planted a vineyard? I could. <laughs> that, you know what? That is so cool because, like, I never even thought, I mean, you think about the vineyard sites and the arrangements and, you know, for like Cab Franc, right? You want to, burn off those pure those pyrazines but not too much sun that it starts to turn the grapes to raisin so there is that distinction of how you're planting it so that you get the sun that you need and then cooler when the hot sun is there it's protected you get that but that's very specific august 15th <laughs> no that's very very specific. well you know i'm a scientist and i'm first born this is not a happy mix <laughs> yeah. oh oh my god um so what about um what about the fidelity? So now we're going well, into a blend. So this is yes. a red wine still from Alexander Valley and this is Fidelity. So first let's start off with the name. Where is Fidelity coming from? Well, this is a funny story. So a friend of mine who owned the vineyard at the time, he'd sold his winery um to a famous person. And he hadn't been, and he had a three-year contract on the grapes, and he hadn't been paid. So he calls me up and says, "Nick, I'm going bankrupt. Can you help me?" And this is sort of how I got started on 
working with small family businesses. He was the first one to really get me going. This is before I, this is while I was still at LVMH at CME. And I said, all right, I went up and I, and I knew the winemaker. And so I tasted all the, the 1999, the 2000, 2001, they were all in tank. And I said, man, these wines are really good. Three vintages. Let's put all the 99 together, all the 2000 together, all the 2001. And it was predominantly Merlot with a bit of Cab, Cap Franc and Malbec. And I called up a buddy of mine, a large retailer, a big state. <laughs> and this is Nick Goldschmidt, winemaker, right? Brilliant marketing. I'm really good at marketing. So <laughs> let's launch a wine on Valentine's Day. We'll call it Fidelity. And we'll put a big heart on the label. Wow, what a what a great idea! <laughs> so six months later, after you know everyone got over Valentine's, the buyer calls me up and goes, "Nick, I don't want to, I don't want the last five hundred cases." I'm like, "Dude, you know, I still I haven't come out of the closet, man. I still work for LVMH." So I called up my three mates who were distributors out on the East Coast, New Jersey, Indiana, and um, uh, uh, Boston, Massachusetts. They agreed to take the 500 cases. Next day, 92 points, best buy wine enthusiast. The big buyer calls me up and goes, Nick, can I get my wine back? <laughs> so today, you, uh, no. today on the label, you'll see there's a broken heart. It's a broken heart. <laughs> and this is a screw you to all the large companies in the retail business of screwing up the wine industry and trying to put us hardworking family businesses in the pocket of the big guys. So this is our little revolution, our little fight back. So you will not find fidelity in large retail. You will have to find it in small independent retailers or uh, wine lists. So that's where the name fidelity comes from. That it, that may be the best story ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is um, this is Merlot and Capsov. You said correct. Yes, I lied. It's it's eighty five percent Merlot and it's about ten percent Cab, and then I put in I got a little bit of Malbec um, and Petit Verdot. Oh, okay. And, and I've got Cab Franc planted and will be included in the twenty twenty two vintage. Yeah. All right, so it's kind of like a true Bordeaux. Yes, know? and for this price, you cannot buy true Bordeaux at this price because normally. A red blend will include Syrah, which you can crop a lot heavier and it's a lot cheaper. So people normally put in, you know, 10, 15 percent Syrah to lower the price. There is no Syrah. There's no Zinfandel, no Petite Syrah. This is only the five Bordeaux varietals. And so what does this retail for about? You can get it under 20 bucks. Oh, my goodness. OK. Yeah, so that's um, in fact, all three of these wines. Trig Point's going to be a little bit more expensive, probably going to be 22 ish, 23 Wow. But Chelsea and Fidelity, you can um, get them under 20 bucks. And if you're at the in California, since we're both in California, you can get Chelsea at some of the Safeways um, oh, around okay. California. Yeah, yeah. And so is the blend, so then I'm guessing it's it's not a field blend. You're harvesting separately, keeping, oh, there's a smile. Is it a field yeah, blend? Yeah, no, it's like oh. you talk about field blending all the time. You know, the Italians used to plant Cav, Malot, I mean, sorry, you know, Zin, Maved, Syrah, Petit Syrah, everything in the vineyard. And that's, you know, so that's where the term field blending came around. We make... Um, a Carignan from a 150-year-old vineyard and a Zinfandel and a Petit Bordeaux from 120-year-old vineyards, which is extremely rare because these vineyards were actually planted 
as single varietal, which which is unbelievable. So I have these three vineyards, which I'm extremely, we sell them under a brand called Grace Point. But no, when it came to Bordeaux varietals, these were planted after, you know, you, you they were planted before Prohibition, but predominantly after Prohibition. And so, yeah, by that time, winemakers, winemakers started sneaking into the vineyard and making decisions. And one of those decisions right. was, let's keep all the varietals separately because we want to pick them all on the same day and we don't want to, you know, Right. And, and I think with Bordeaux, there's a bigger, I think to be a field blend, they need to be ripening at about the same time. And that's not so we, true. We know that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, another conspiracy, but no. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, so is is the... Is it? It's always going to be a Merlot based. Yes, okay. um, I have again. It's a single vineyard, but in this instance, it's the only wine that we make a blend. We make a, a Zinfandel from a little bit of with a little bit of Petit Syrah, and then we make this red Bordeaux blend. And this wine's been around for now since two thousand. Well, I told you since nineteen ninety nine, so it's been around a long time, and uh, has a great following. It's um, we don't make too much of it. The fidelity, but it has a great following, yeah. So if it's always Merlot-based, always legally Merlot, why do you choose to put red wine on it versus... Because everything I do is one one vineyard, one vintage, one variety. So this is a situation where it's not one variety, and I don't want to confuse the few friends that I've got left (laughs) um, that what it is. So I do want to put red blend on it. And I can't put Cabernet, Merlot, Franc, etc. because every vintage, the blend is a little bit different because it depends on yield and because we have an authority that regulates wine labeling and I'd, I know I'd have to submit each different, each vintage, if I change the percentage by 1%, I'd have right. to submit into 50 states for 50 different legal reasons and re- it's just too hard. So unfortunately, we have to put red blend on the label. I wish I could put Bordeaux blend but legally, I can't do that. They don't allow Bordeaux to be on the label either. No, it's an appellation. So, yeah. They make it so difficult. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Man, maybe we just, here's our, but that's what makes life exciting. That is you true. Know, what makes life exciting is having to explain something and gives us an opportunity and to educate and to enthrall and show our passion and and what makes me different to my friends around town here and and yeah no if i'm not excited you know things are going to get boring so that's true you have to remain excited you have to remain excited well where can if if i pin you down and i say i need you to tell our listeners Three things about Merlot that you want them to remember most and most heartedly strong, strongly hearted. What are what are three things about well, Merlot? Well, firstly, if you don't drink Merlot, you're an idiot. Because, I like that. <laughs> because Merlot is like the perfect American food, American palate wine. And it just doesn't get enough credence. Secondly, there are, you know, there are a couple of extremely large players in the Merlot game who are doing extremely well. 
But look out for us guys who are single vineyard, and you know it's single vineyard because we have one called Diamond Dust and the other one called Guidestone Rise. So you know that these are single vineyards. And I think that people say, well, if it's single vineyard, it's not going to be as complex. Well, I believe that because of the vineyards we have, I can make a really complex wine from those vineyards. I don't pick Merlot on the same day in those vineyards. I usually pick it two or three times. So I get different blending options and and that's what makes the wines really complex. And then thirdly, Merlot is way better value than Cabernet. Definitely. And if you want to contact us, you can just send an email. You've got my email address there, nick at goldschmidtvineyards.com. Yep, it will be in the notes. Mm -hmm. If you change it to wine at goldschmidtvineyards.com, no problem. And, you know, I have another question. You know, there's certain varieties that we hear more about clones, right? Pinot, clone, 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 clone. Chardonnay, clones, clones, whatever. What about Merlot? Are, are you ha are you working with different clones in these different vineyards? Are, is, is it more rootstock focused? Is it more clone? You should have asked this one at the beginning. I um, know, I'm sorry. It just popped in my I head. Don't, <laughs> I don't like clones. You don't like clones, okay. No, because... You probably heard of Dijon clones and UC Davis clones and Espaguette clones, the Italian versions. But they talk about clone 95 being a little more muscular than clone 96 when it comes to Chardonnay. But guess what? Those two vines are right next to each other. Marsal, so we make a lot of Chardonnay, but we don't use any clones. I use the old Marsal, the old field mass selections that were collected for certain varietal characteristics. Unfortunately, because we had to replace AXR1 in 1989, that... You know, we're talking about two forms of vinifera, right? Vitis vinifera is Cab Chard Malo, like you know, but Vitis Labrasca is the rootstock, Blandery, Repestris, you know. So when we took those old mass selections, field selections, and put them on top of the new rootstock, we got virus, leaf roll, stem pitting, corky bark, et cetera. But in the Russian River, we have Goldridge Sandy Loam. That Goldridge Sandy Loam soil, that's one of three soils, Wachika and Franciscan, if we are on a Goldridge Sandy Loam, we don't need to replace the rootstock. The AXL1 vineyards that we make Chardonnay from still exist. And so we only deal with mass selections and field selections. Cabernet, same thing. I've gone back to some of the original heritage. They call them heritage clones, but they're not. They're heritage field selections. Uh, Turkey Hill, which is one where clones seven and eight, the most famous clones, clones seven and eight came from, came from Turkey Hill. So I, went, I know where the vineyard was. So I went back to the original vineyard and, and identified clean-looking plants, and I took cuttings from there. Merlot is more difficult. Merlot, yeah, there's not as much old plant material around for Merlot, but there's mainly one clone that's 181 is the main clone that we use. And the best thing about it is, like I said earlier, it doesn't it has a much better set than some of the others. Uh, and Pinot is kind of in between, if you're interested. I mean, Pomade is an old field selection, which is now clone 2A, cleaned up clone 2A. But um, yeah, there's, you know, the old swan. You've heard of swan. The swan is not a clone. Swan's a selection. So yeah, Merlot is probably the most difficult. I, To be honest, I don't know any mass selection Merlot plant material out there. I, yeah, To be honest, I haven't looked. But um, yeah. Oh, well, very cool. And now if somebody wants to come taste your wine in person, you're doing, they can come visit you. Yes, and you can come so, and visit me personally in my office. Um, at base yeah, camp? So <laughs> at base camp. So we're not open to the public anymore. We we decided to change 
the way we talked about our wines and we really want to have intimate one-on-one conversations. So you can contact us directly and myself or my assistant winemaker or my wife will um, host you. And uh, we love to have people out here and like we have people here all the time uh, tasting and and if you're lucky enough, we'll take you on a quick vineyard tour as well or take you up to the winery and taste some wine. So it depends on how much time you've got and how much interest you have. Um, but, yeah, no, we'd love to see you. Love all all people to come. And, uh, yeah, if you can't come, as I said, you can go to Goldschmidt Vineyards on YouTube and you'll see a lot of YouTube videos up there um, with what we're doing. And I will have that YouTube channel linked in the show notes along with your website so that they can find you and contact you. And thank you so much for the Merlot um, knowledge and sharing and um, opinions. I absolutely love it. And I did pour myself a little bit uh, more of the Chelsea so I can raise a glass and say slancha. And thank you very much. And here is to Merlot taking its place where it deserves. <laughs> Certainly, Lauren. If you want to see where I am um, in the world, you go on my, I do use Instagram. So each day I put up a location of which country I'm in and which vineyard I'm at. Um, so, yeah, if you follow Goldschmidt underscore vineyards on Instagram, you can see exactly where I am each day. So, yeah. That is perfect. It's like where in the world Absolutely. is Wal- is where in the world is Waldo. Yeah. I couldn't well, think of, I couldn't think of his name. <laughs> now we have GPS. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A lot easier, right? Well, Laurie, thank, thank you. you. And from you know, I love Fresno. You know, I love being down there. I, I teach I still teach the odd class down at Fresno State. Oh so, wow. Yeah, Come. on on style oh, and quality. I, I teach a class down there. But yeah, no, fantastic, awesome. Really appreciate your time. And Merlot Me Month is not long enough. We need Merlot no. Me Year. There you go. It's lunch. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Butt. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter at exploringthewineglass.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Podcast music is Wine by Kevitz. Until next week, slancha. No, 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 no.